this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for February 2022. I'm especially enthused about today's discussion because this month's JAMDA is entirely devoted to reimagining long-term care, and it's packed with provocative and intriguing articles. I'd like to encourage our listeners to let their colleagues and friends know that all of the content in this important issue is going to be available without a paywall for the whole next year. And thanks to you guys, the editors, and to Elsevier and to AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, for making all this great content available at no charge. And before we start, I want to remind our listeners that the AMDA annual meeting in Baltimore is coming up March 10th to 13th. I hope to see many of you there. And for those who can't make it in person, there is a virtual option. Hot off the press, I also want to share our congratulations to my predecessor, Dr. Wayne Saltzman, and to John Gladstone for winning a Bronze Anthem Award for nonprofit podcasts. Uh, That's a a big accomplishment, and uh, I'm just really proud to be part of it. I'm also very sad to have to notify our listeners who may not already be aware that John Gladstone died late last year, and uh, he was such a fixture and such a great guy. uh, And uh, in response, the AMDA board has created an endowed award in his name for media excellence, the first of which is going to be presented at our annual meeting in Baltimore. So today, in addition to our regular presenters, Drs. Philip Sloan and Mallory Brown, we're joined by Dr. Cheryl Zimmerman, who coordinated development of this special issue. Dr. Sloan and Zimmerman are co-editors-in-chief of JAMDA and just general partners in crime. And in addition, Dr. Sloan is the Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Zimmerman is a university distinguished professor and co-director of the Health Services Research Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at UNC Chapel Hill. Dr. Brown is a family physician and geriatrician at UNC, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program, in addition to being an associate editor of JAMDA. So welcome, Drs. Sloan, Brown, and Zimmerman. And let me start out by asking about this special issue overall. Dr. Zimmerman, so you were the one who kind of put this whole thing together. So let me ask you, how and why did you put it together? What's all in it? And how has the reception been so far? Uh, Thanks, yeah, Carl. Thanks so much for the opportunity to highlight this special issue and why JAMDA wanted to focus on reimagining long-term care in the first place. Um, I'm sure the JAMDA on the go listeners, they know better than anyone else the historic problems we've had with long-term care, and that those problems became exponentially worse during COVID. Now, one of the underappreciated aspects of COVID is that 
it, it provided a real opportunity for change. Change is most likely to occur during times of crisis, and that's exactly what COVID was. So JAMSA considered it a rare opportunity to take stock of where we've been, where we were, and what we need to do in terms of actually improving long-term care, and then to use JAMSA's platform to promote that evidence-based change. So it was really a very time-sensitive opportunity. So that's the why of why we were really enthused about putting together this special issue. The how was that we solicited our entire editorial board to identify topics that we thought merited being reimagined, came up with almost 30 different examples, and they, they just ranged the whole gamut from care practices, communication, technology, financing, ethics, you know, the whole, the whole large range of what we might think about where we could improve long-term care. Um, so we issued a call for manuscripts. We made sure that call was widely distributed, um, twisted a few arms of folks who we, we knew would be real thought leaders in this area, and then waited to see what was, what was submitted. Um, the end of the day, kind of getting to the what of what's in the special issue, we got about 70 submissions. 26 of them were accepted for publication. In the um, journal, we've grouped them into five different areas, workforce, societal issues, different models of long-term care, financing, payment, and regulation, and then long-term care services. But, but we know, and listeners know, and virtually every paper recognized the fact that no one of these things is, is unrelated to the other. So, I mean, for example, if you change regulation, we're likely to see implications for changes in financing, workforce models of care services. You know, really, it's got this domino effect. So we also saw that as a really good thing. Um, it's hard to change long-term care, but if you make change in one area, you can perhaps make a really big difference. So um, we've had a lot of buzz about the interest in this special issue and um, the individual papers, and I'm excited for us to highlight a few of those today. Well, thank you, and I would just uh, echo that. I've heard so much uh, positive uh, feedback about uh, the content of the issue, and I mean, honestly, with those five topic areas, you could probably have an issue on each one. Uh, and the, the quality of the content, I uh, just want to really compliment you on that. So, uh, all right, well, let's go to Dr. Brown. So what paper are we going to start talking about here? Sure. Um, I'm excited to highlight first um, an article called Reimagining Family Involvement in Residential Long-Term Care. This is certainly a topic that's been highlighted in the past 24 months during the pandemic and is incredibly important in the care that we provide to older adults in long-term care. So I think how family involvement is optimized in nursing homes or assisted living settings remains fairly underexplored. The tension in how family involvement in long-term care is optimized has like so many other critical issues been magnified and exacerbated throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Facility lockdowns and visitor restrictions that were mandated early on which were used to diminish spread, have raised serious concerns among families and staff about the social, social deprivation experienced by many residents that in turn led to a number of other adverse health outcomes. This particular article presents an updated literature review from January of 2007 to November of 2021 to investigate the state of science of family involvement in long-term care. The studies reviewed were categorized into terms of their focus on family involvement. And these categories included types and domains of family involvement, family involvement and outcomes, family staff relationships, 
family involvement, long-term care and key transitions, optimizing family involvement in long-term care, and finally, the potentially transformative effects of COVID-19. From this literature review, a number of practice and policy recommendations emerged that include the following. First, to enhance communication and achieve family-centered care. Secondly, to incorporate family as a policy driver and adhere to existing visiting recommendations. And third, to focus on understudied sociodemographic contexts, advance measurement, examine transitions to and from long-term care, develop interventions, incorporate a family staff resident lens, and adopt a longitudinal perspective on family involvement in long-term care. I'd urge you all, the listeners, to take a closer look at table one in the journal, again, available to all of us at no charge, which takes a closer look at the research practice and policy recommendations to reimagine how family involvement in residential long-term care could be. I think we can all agree that COVID-19 starkly demonstrated the crucial role of families in the well-being of our residents and that quality of life as well as personhood is challenging to remain in long-term care settings when residents are socially isolated and feel so alone. If the structure of regulation and care delivery in long-term care are not shifted toward more representative governance models, the authors argue that the likelihood of innovative approaches to reimagine family involvement and improve resident well-being will remain elusive. Well, thank you for that. And I think uh, any of us who are frontline uh, clinicians have observed uh, the negative effects of uh, absence of family. Uh, for those of our residents who are fortunate enough to have family around, uh, they can be a big help in so many ways. Uh, I mean, they know our residents better than anybody else could possibly know them. And uh, they really can help out uh, with even with some of the direct care and so on, uh, bringing in food from home that the that the resident really likes and, and things of that nature. And I, there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, having uh, resident and family councils uh, that are have more of a robust uh, sort of impact on the care that's given. So uh, in in residential long term care and, and in nursing homes. Uh, so uh, any comments about that? Oh, I, I'd, I'd like to add one thing there, Carl. I'm so glad you raised that point and Mallory had said it, is that one thing that really impressed me with that paper was so overtly talking about the fact that families should be much more involved in being policy drivers of what's happening within long-term care because they haven't been, you know, right, as you say, they've been in family councils, but I think we've, we've it's, it's just been driven home so strongly how important their role is, and if we're going to get it right about um, having them be part of the recognized workforce, they need to they need to have a voice in what that care provision looks like. Absolutely, thank you for that, Cheryl. Um, all right, well, let's move on because we have so much to cover. Uh, the next one is going to be about reimagining financing and payment of long-term care services. So, Dr. Sloan, hit us up. Uh, well, you know, financing and payment is a crucial issue and a very tough one. This article is written by two national experts on long-term care financing. It begins with what we all know, which is that most of the rest of the developed world has better public financing for long-term care than we do. Um, 
And they really felt, and I agree, that the system is so incomplete that having a little tweak has been done for decades will not fix it. Now, of course, the root of the problem was a political decision back in 1967 to focus Medicare on acute care only and exclude long-term care services. And that's what we've been battling ever since. The solution the authors propose is a new federal long-term care benefit. It's not the first time we've heard about this. They said, you know, we're just hoping that COVID will maybe make people think more about this. Anyway, the idea is you know, it could be an expansion of Medicare or of Medicaid or a new separate program. They felt that the, the most sensible approach would be to extend Medicare to cover long-term care for older adults and to have it cover the entire range of long-term care services, home care, all this, you know, nursing home care. And that would, of course, require some serious financing changes, including some taxpayer subsidies, some premiums for beneficiaries, and some cost sharing. It would affect everyone, but it would eliminate the spend down to Medicaid, which basically is a tax on one family's wealth. And instead, they'd spread it out over all beneficiaries or potential beneficiaries. They also wanted to promote the idea of long-term care outside the nursing home, home-based long-term care, community-based care to increase efficiency and provide incentives as CMS is already starting to do. The article ends with what is essentially a reality check, saying that the responsibility for initiating and creating such a system lies with US Congress and noting that multiple proposals have been put forth over the past several decades for some type of federal long-term care insurance and that all others have, for all practical purposes, fail to be implemented. And I have yeah, to say, you know, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I just I want to editorialize, you know, this is such a good idea and it's been so long in coming and I just worry about the political climate, whether we can make it happen. Yeah, I totally agree. I, there's uh, legislation pending right now, HR 4289. Uh, hold on. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Let me take a little sip of <clears throat> okay. Um, yes, there's legislation pending right now, uh, HR 4289, also called the WISH Act uh, from Swazi that uh, came out last year. Um, but I share your concern, Phil, that uh, with the current uh, uh, level of uh, disagreement and partisanship, it's unlikely that that will pass. But certainly uh, a variety of schemes to fund long-term care uh, through payroll taxes or corporate income tax and things like that um, are being considered both nationally and on a state-by-state -state basis. And um, Washington state did not have very much success with that. But um, we do see so many people where their savings get wiped out uh, covering the costs of long-term care. And if, if it could be done, even to uh, allow people to stay, uh, like you said, in a home community-based setting, as opposed to going into a much more expensive residential or, or a skilled facility, uh, that would be wonderful. So I hope uh, as time goes by, we can uh, figure out a way to do that because the cost is just so high. That's, that's part of the issue, I think. Any other comments on that? I, the only thing I'd like to add, and this is Cheryl, and, and I, 
I feel I've got a lot to say because having overseen this issue, I kind of know some of the nuts and bolts of things that went into all of these uh, evidence-based papers and recommendations to reimagine. Um, I want to recognize that what you're seeing in these papers isn't just the thought pieces from these authors, but there were a lot of the scientific reviewers who review for JAMDA who suggest new ways to think about things and have those points incorporated into the papers. And I know with this just being one of, of many of the others that there were some um, expert reviewers who really helped kind of push the envelope to think about even more creatively than um, you know, authors might have otherwise. So a shout out to them as well as the authors of each one of these papers. Thank you for that, Cheryl. So I'm sure we could discuss a lot more on that topic, but we still have several more papers to present. So I found the assisted living content intriguing, in part because those of us who work in this setting and our leadership at AMDA have long clamored for sort of improved medical oversight in what the assisted living industry has desperately clung to describing as kind of residential or social model care you know, we're not medical, but yet we all know that there are many seriously and chronically ill people living in these settings, uh, yet these settings are relatively unregulated compared to nursing homes. I mean, you see antipsychotics thrown around like candy, like, like before OBRA uh, in the nursing homes, and, uh, you know, a lot of them uh, don't, don't have a clinician that comes into the building. There's no nurses. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. And uh, so I understand that the paper you co-authored, Cheryl, on reimagining assisted living has provoked a lot of interest, not surprisingly, uh, including some coverage in McKnight's. And uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, this is something that I'm uh, really passionate about. Uh, my own research has, has been very deeply into assisted living. So um, I led this paper, but I think what makes this paper really important is that it presents the viewpoints of 25 very well-informed stakeholders. There were a couple of retreats and this paper um, summarizes what came out during those retreats. I mean, and it included clinicians, provider organizations, administrators, regulatory folks, um, people from advocacy groups. So um, a lot of different voices. And the, I think the introductory sentence to the paper tells the story best. And so I just wrote it down here so I could share it. The introductory sentence somewhere in the introduction says, many stakeholders agree and vehemently so that today's assisted living is not as intended in the past and that it must be reimagined for the future. And I'll say going into these retreats and, and collecting these data and analyzing them qualitatively and what themes were coming out, I was personally surprised by the unanimity of perspectives about the fact that we've got it wrong. Assisted living is not doing what we wanted to do. We need to think about it differently. No matter who it was, everyone agreed on that. And I want to point out as a side point that um, assisted living is now the largest provider of residential long-term care in the U.S. If you take out the people who are in nursing homes for post-acute or rehab care, just look at long-stay folks, fully half of them, and even a little bit more than half, are in assisted living. So. It's, it's time to really be paying attention to this if we haven't been already. So end of the day, this paper, these stakeholders after two um, half-day retreats, basically it things to say about five different tensions that are um, impacting on assisted living and making it not be what it was intended to be. So let's give a, like, a, a few sentences for each one of those. One was this tension about models of assisted living. Um, we have gotten to the place where 
services and housing have become embedded into one. And by virtue of that, uh, the option for person-centered care people to be able to choose the kind of services they want has really been limited. So there's, there's lots of evidence about successful models where services have been separated from housing, um, which feels a lot more intentional in terms of what assisted living wanted to do. You know, and a good example is how PACE, people who live in assisted living, can use PACE services. Um, another tension is regulation. Um, Carl, I'm glad you mentioned that. Right, these places aren't state regulated, aren't federally regulated. Um, they're state regulated, which I think probably most people know by now. But this statistic really jumped out at me. Across the states, there's 350 different ways that assisted living has different policies um, and, and regulations, if you will. So you can only imagine the types of challenges that make. People not only don't know what assisted living is from one state to another or even within one state, um, but it also makes it challenging to think that regulation is going to promote quality, which is what regulation is supposed to do. So um, good examples, evidence-based examples that were brought forth was different types of um, public policy, uh, uh, public-private partnerships um, for quality reporting, and also accreditation is really getting traction. Uh, third tension being financing. Um, average costs for assisted living range anywhere between, say, 30 and more than $50,000. Um, so this has not been um, catering to the middle-income residents, and there was a lot of discussion about how that can happen uh, by having tax subsidy subsidies for a new building to help promote buildings in ways that will both benefit the providers and then make assisted living more um, accessible to middle-income folks. And of course, promoting more Medicaid, higher Medicaid support. Um, virtually all states do cover Medicaid, but it's of course insufficient. Fourth tension, resident acuity. Um, I think maybe most people have heard that statement, today's assisted living residents look like the nursing home residents from 10 years ago. Um, so we need to be doing something about that. There's been already an evolution. There's more than half the places have nurses. There's been some new on-site mo models of on-site medical care, um, which have had some evidence-based benefits, like reduced ER visits and hospitalization, but there are also some limitations. So um, it needs to be done in a mindful way, uh, but also interesting examples about how Medicare Advantage plans can be used in different ways. And then the last tension, um, which probably goes without saying, it's the workforce. Right, it's, it's a problem for all long-term care, but there's unique differences or unique considerations when it comes to assisted living. Uh, perhaps largely, if one thinks about the fact that these people are not as well-trained, the, the training regulations are they're fewer even that for direct care workers than they are in nursing homes, and also, the, for the most part, uh, staffing ratios are unspecified. So one exciting development in this area is that um, the state of Oregon is doing some um, study within the state to establish acuity-based staffing recommendations. So in the end of the day, this paper came up with 20 different recommendations, very specific solutions that have got a good evidence base that they really can be tried and there's some reason to try them, um, all towards how we can be reimagining assisted living in the future. So as you can see, I'm very enthused about this and um, hope that this conversation will go on for a long time with real movement being made. Yes, thank you for that. And I would just encourage all of our listeners to, to punch up the paper. It does have some, you know, actionable uh, ideas in there. Um, and I want to just ask uh, all of you editors uh, just to have a couple of observations on this area. Um, I know 
at least out here in California, the costs can be a lot more than 50,000 uh, for some of these assisted living communities. And that creates additional equity concerns, right? Like it's uh, mostly uh, older, wealthy white women that live in these places. Uh, and uh, while I think you mentioned Medicaid and some states do have a certain number of Medicaid waivers that will cover the costs of assisted living. I mean, in a sense, shouldn't a lot of the long-term uh, nursing home residents be uh, in assisted living at a lower cost? So that's one thing. And then the, the other thing is um, we'd like to have more of a medical presence for these people who are ill uh, and who really need assistance and who maybe are not in the best shape to go out to a doctor's office. But how does a little six bed afford to have a medical director, medical advisor, what have you, um, and is telemedicine an answer to that? Uh, so if you have any comments on that. Well, the only comment I would have is that some of the six bed homes are the most home-like and they provide some of the best care. Of course, there's a much variation. So um, it, it makes it tricky. Well, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, if I were to pick an assisted living, I'd much rather be in a six bed where I'm, you know, it's a two to six uh, uh, ratio and you're getting home cooked food and, and all that. But uh, a lot of people like the big fancy assisted livings. So. Yeah. Yeah. I encourage people to read the, read the paper because even this point was talked about, um, it, you know, to some extent about how people may be getting what they want in those big places. And, um, you know, surprisingly, some people may get the more person-centeredness in one type of setting than another. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it, it all does come down to personal choice. Yet, Carl, yeah, issues related to access and the more we regulate it, the more we increase services there, that's going to have an, an effect on uh, cost. So it's very much this kind of dynamo and circular, uh, circular effects that we need to be really mindful about. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Well, so we could talk a lot more about that, I'm sure, but we still have a few other uh, papers to hit. So next one is about a somewhat related issue that's been much in the news lately, systemic racism. And this one is entitled Evidence for Action, Addressing Systemic Racism Across Long-Term Services and Supports. So Dr. Brown, tell us about this one. Yeah, I, I was going to say, Carl, I think you bring up a good point about assisted living and the payer mix and um, who's residing in those, and that really leads well into this article as well. So um, in this article, I think, you know, we are addressing systemic racism. There was a great um, article put out by our very own Dr. Sloan and Dr. Zimmerman earlier this year about a similar topic. Um, and so we'll, we'll dive into this. It comes as no surprise to anyone here listening when I remind us the population of individuals over the age of 65 is rising dramatically and will continue to do so over the coming decades. This population of older adults is also becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. And in an effort to support aging in place, independence, and additional long-term um, care, more long-term services and supports are absolutely necessary. Long-term services and supports are highly racially segregated. Black, indigenous, and persons of colors have less access to quality care and report qu poorer quality of life compared to their white counterparts. Systemic racism lies at the root of these disparities manifesting by, by our racially segregated care, low Medicaid reimbursement, and lack of livable wages for staff, along with other policies and processes that exacerbate disparities 
The COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on the inequitable delivery of long-term care services with studies finding disparities in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths among nursing homes that primarily serve Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Assuring that all Americans have access to high-quality long-term services and supports requires specific and intentional actions to address racial and ethnic disparities. The art article highlighted here reviewed five possible mechanisms for addressing racial and ethnic disparities. First, Medicaid reimbursement. Next, pay per performance, as well as public reporting of quality of care. Fourth, cultural change in nursing homes. And finally, integrated home and community-based service programs. Based on existing evidence, the authors developed the following recommendations. One, increase Medicaid and Medicare reimbursement rates, especially for providers serving high proportions of Medicaid-eligible older adults and persons who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Second, reconsider the design of pay-for-performance programs as they relate to providers who serve underserved groups. Third, include culturally sensitive measures such as quality of life in public reporting of quality of care and develop and report health equity measures and outcomes of care for people who are racial and ethnic minorities. Fourth, implement cultural change so services are more person-centered and home-like alongside improvements in staff wages and benefits in high minority nursing homes. Fifth, expand access to Medicaid waiver home care-based services. Sixth, adopt culturally appropriate practices with special attention to family caregivers. Seventh, increase promotion of integrated programs that can be targeted to underrepresented consumers and implement models that value community health workers. Multi-pronged solutions may help diminish the role of systemic racism in existing racial disparities in long-term services and supports. And these recommendations provide steps for action that are needed to reimagine how long-term care is delivered, especially for our underrepresented consumers. Cheryl and Phil, um, I know y'all have you published an article earlier this year, an editorial. Which of these recommendations stand out to you after writing that editorial? Well, you know, um, there's a very good comprehensive presentation. And of course, all these different recommendations link to each other. Uh, you can't just do one. But um, if I have to think of one thing, it really would be something I'll talk about when I talk about the last paper, which is um, making the Medicare and the Medicaid reimbursement more equitable. Um, and, you, you know, we could talk about raising them both, but the real problem is that the low Medicaid rates. Um, and so that's number one. And then the other thing I have to mention is that wouldn't it be nice if quality of life was a quality indicator? And if that were designed in a way that it captured some of the nuances of difference of de definition and sense of quality of life, depending on people's cultural backgrounds. And that involves implementing culture change, you know, culture change modalities, person-centered care. So if you put those into a mix, I think we would, if we could make it happen, it would be moving in the right direction. Thank you for that. I, I also, I mean, I do think that the things in my experience that actually drive change 
often have to do with with dollars, unfortunately. So any of those things, uh, Phil, what you just said, um, also, uh, you know, expanding access to the services at home, uh, certainly that's that's part of it. And um, it, it's such a big issue, and it's so difficult to to really uh, address it and and try to cure it in an equitable way and and you know there, then there's pushback they say you know it's unfair in the other direction I, i've heard colleagues say that even even with respect to uh giving more uh, vaccines or giving more um, of the therapeutics for covid to disadvantaged zip codes and so on and um, i think we have a long way to go toward uh trying to rectify some of the uh uh, the inequities and, and historical injustices. Um, any other comments on that? That's a whole nother podcast, right? Um, so uh, thank you for that, Mallory. That's that's great stuff. And uh, I, I just want our listeners to know that AMDA is uh, taking uh, diversity and equity, inclusivity, all that uh, seriously. Uh, really baking it into everything we do. Uh, we, we feel it's it's extremely important. Um, so the next paper uh, is entitled The Uncertain Future of Nursing Home Post-Acute Care. I see that you wrote it, Phil. So can you please summarize this interesting topic for us? Well, in this editorial, I questioned the role of post-acute care in the nursing home of the future. So I want to start with a little background, you know, from its inception in 1967, as I mentioned, Medicare included post-hospital recovery, but post-acute care in nursing homes really didn't take off until the DRGs were introduced. And for those of us old timers like me, what happened with the DRGs was hospitals worked really hard to shorten length of stay. All of a sudden there was somebody rounding with you on day one, trying to get people out of the hospital. This created a bonanza for nursing homes because people who weren't ready to go home had to go somewhere. Um, but it also led to the current situation where Medicare pays much better than Medicaid. So nursing homes vie for post-acute care patients. And this, as we've mentioned, aggravates the resource disparities between homes. So what is less appreciated is that the percentage of hospital discharges going to nursing homes has been going down for two decades. And it really plummeted in the last couple of years. There are a number of reasons for this. You know, consumers just generally have a little aversion to nursing homes, the word. And that's worsened a lot by the publicity about deaths and visitor restrictions about COVID-19, you know. And then there've been strong incentives by CMS toward community-based post-acute care options. All this has markedly strained the nursing home industry such that many homes are teetering on bankruptcy. Then there's another question, different question, which is, does it really make sense to mix in the same building two very different populations? People who want rehabilitation so they can go home and individuals for whom the facility desires to create a home. Bob Kane talked about this a couple decades ago in an article and shows how little things have changed. He said, it is hard to deliver one form well. It is much harder to combine the two because the goals and skills required to do post-acute care well are quite different from those required to create long-term residents. Now there's a lot of nuances to this. and I'm not gonna talk about that here. We get into more detail in the uh, editorial, but these two issues, you know, fewer post-acute patients and concern about the wisdom of mixing the two populations 
are really the crux of the uncertain future of nursing home post-acute care. One reimagined solution you know, is to have two licensure categories and separate building types, post-acute facilities and long-term care homes. Post-acute facilities were closely aligned to hospitals, perhaps on the same campus, with ready access to hospital resources such as infection control departments, you know, rehabilitation departments, medical subspecialists, whereas the long-term care settings would focus much more on creating home-like environments that emphasize quality of life and palliative care. Such a reorientation of the nursing home industry would require a lot of changes, of course. At minimum, Medicaid and Medicare should pay more evenly, thereby stopping this nonsense of having Medicare pay for the inadequacies of Medicaid. And then better yet would be to implement a more robust long-term care payment model like I discussed earlier. Now, all this probably sounds like pie in the sky, I know, but you know, COVID has created a degree of pressure for policy change that maybe something will happen that couldn't happen before. Yes, I, I think uh, you know, those of us that work in this field often lament the sort of cluelessness of others. I mean, even people at CMS, uh, people at the hospital, um, you know, regulators and so on really don't get that sort of dual population, the skilled SNF post-acute versus the uh, custodial NIF long-term residents that we have. And really, do they belong in there together? I mean, it makes for a more colorful work environment for sure. Um, but uh, just from a logical standpoint, does it really make sense? And that's a really good question. Um, and beyond that, there's that whole sort of reimbursement uh, incentives and disincentives and you know the whole kind of rehab to death thing where somebody comes in who really should just be getting palliative care but because the facility can make more money because the family doesn't have to uh, pay for the bed you know it all kind of conspires to torture a person with with uh, unnecessary and unwanted attempts at rehabilitation so uh it's a it's a fascinating topic area and i i just you know the industry is very sort of set in its ways. Um, but I think a lot of people uh, who are looking to the future are looking for different ways to, to um, make things continue to be viable, as opposed to just continuing to, to scrounge for the, for the Medicare population. So mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't it be nice if, if the uh, Medicaid um, reimbursement were better? Uh, you, know, you know, what would be interesting, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, would, and we didn't do it in this article, would be to try to clarify what a model of a good long-term care only setting would be. You know, because, you know, having the, the, the rehab staff you know, and having this movement in and out, it's got pluses and minuses, but um, I think it, it dominates too much the way we think about nursing homes. And we haven't thought about a nursing home that can really be a home. Now, the culture change folks have done some of that. And so that's probably where we would look. Yes, yes. I'm, Sorry, I'm go ahead. Thinking about the evolution and, you know, we, we start to lose the distinction between nursing home and assisted living, which is not necessarily bad. Mm -hmm. It's just to why I think all of us who work in this field find it as intriguing as we do. 
Yes, and and I do think that uh, having you know the the rapid turnover of residents uh, certainly is disruptive to the long term residents uh, in in our nursing homes. And there's there's uh, just so much to unpack there. But um, that's probably all the time we can spend on that. I I just want to let our listeners know that there is a lot more than what we just hit. Uh, we probably could have done a few podcasts on this. Um, a couple of the ones I liked were the, uh, there was a piece about integrating principles of safety culture and just culture into nursing homes and how the pandemic has sort of uh, helped that evolve. Uh, and that I believe, you know, it fits in with some of the survey reform uh, efforts that, that we've, recommended that seemed to be slow to slow to hit but uh that's another article i'd highly recommend uh and then another piece on high quality nursing home and palliative care one and the same uh and for those of us who work in this care setting i think that's that's our experience a lot of what we do is palliation it's symptom control it's family-based it's team-based uh and so i I really appreciated that, that content there and yet a lot of our facilities may not um, really have access to traditional sort of palliative care teams. Um, I I don't know if uh, any of you editors want to weigh in on that. Well, what we first have to do is make sure everybody understands the definition of palliative care. And once we get to that point, you know, they don't think hospice and they realize that palliation is it's part of what the medical and the healthcare professions do at any age um, mm. when there are symptoms that can't be fixed immediately. And um, so, yeah, yeah. Once you do that, then you realize palliation is a huge part of long-term care. Yes, it's so much of what we do on a day-to-day basis. It's basically, it's like primary palliative care, right? We're not necessarily calling in specialists, but we are providing uh, holistic uh, person-centered care. Well, thank you for that. Uh, any final comments from any of our editors? Just really appreciate having the platform to be able to present this and really appreciate uh, the authors and the reviewers who uh, spent many, many hours to help hopefully promote reimagining and change in long-term care. Me too. And, and uh, thanks to you for putting it together. It really is, uh, I think, uh, th- I hope it will have a lot of impact in the, in the years ahead. And it's just, uh, it was just such a needed thing. I'm really glad that you decided to put this together. And I'll apologize to our listeners for running a little bit longer than usual, but I think uh, the content really merited it. So, That's going to wrap it up for this JAMDA-packed issue of JAMDA on the go, sorry. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. So please take a look at the February 2022 issue and let all your friends know that they do not have to pay for the for the content. Uh, it's all available free online, like I said. So Dr. Sloan Brown Zimmerman, thank you for spending your time with JAMDA on the go today. Happy thank to be you, here. Carl. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for what you do and bringing this to everyone and for what you're doing for AMDA. Uh, Thanks. So uh, references for this podcast can be found at www.
www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda On The Go. Thank you. Join AMDA and your colleagues in person at PALTC 22, AMDA's annual conference that's being held in Baltimore, Maryland, March 10th through 13th, 2022. Or, if you prefer a virtual option, you can attend digitally. There's a great program planned with lots of new content on COVID and other clinical and regulatory topics, along with some favorites like our Policy General session, In the Trenches, Posters, and more. We'll also have an in-person House of Delegates meeting. Learn more at PALTC.org. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's apex.paltc.org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.